Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Missionary God, with a message entitled, Of Those Who Have Never Heard. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1 to 3 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When everyone talks about missions, especially, you know, missions to people in either closed countries or in unreached areas of the world, the question is usually asked, what about those who have never heard? So are you saying that people who have no access to the gospel and have no viable church anywhere near them and maybe don't have an access to a Bible, have never heard the name of Jesus, or if they have, have only a vague notion of him or even have been told misleading things about him, are you saying that such people through no fault of their own will be consigned to hell. Now, on the one hand, it can be said that holding out no hope to anyone outside of Christ is surely motivation to pay whatever costs need to be paid to get the good news to them. I have said it before and I'm gonna say it again. In complacent North America, we would rather debate the fate of those who have never heard than sense the call and pay whatever price must be paid to reach them. See, much of our debate does take place among the smug and the self-satisfied, the overfed and the easy complainers. We would rather raise another objection than we would sit up and say, here am I, Lord, send me, or here am I, Lord, I will give sacrificially. I mean, the appalling lack of a sense of urgency, you know, in my mind, all but eclipses every discussion we would have. Contrast that to the church in Antioch that was worshiping and fasting, listening to the Holy Spirit to know what they must do to take the gospel to the unreached world. I mean, what shall we say in our day? Shall we simply say, ah, well, let's just debate it some more. But there is another side to this matter. And even though I've been a little harsh in my comments, there's a very sincere question that needs asking and answering. I mean, what is the nature of our God, this missionary God? How is it that he who has declared that the earth will be filled with his glory has allowed so much of the world to remain in darkness? Is he really unconcerned that generation after generation should live and die in darkness, and yet he does not seem to lift his hand to rescue certain people groups? Is it wrong to ask of God what Abraham asked when God determined that he would destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will not the judge of the earth then do what is right? Well, very well. If we're going to talk about the fate of those who have never heard and have never been given a chance, well, then let's go to a man who's an expert in this matter, the Apostle Paul. Do you remember what he said in Romans 15, verse 20? He said, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. And when he speaks of those who have never been told and then of those who have never heard, See, the point I'm making is that Paul encountered people all the time who had never heard. He encountered them every day, every time he moved to a new region. So he's not basing his arguments on rumors and reports of what unreached people are actually like, but on personal encounters and on the basis, of course, of the divine revelation that had been given to him. So where would Paul begin? So let's begin in Romans. And please remember that the book of Romans was written at a time when Paul had not yet visited the Christians who were in Rome. Someone else had founded that church. And please also remember that the reason for writing that book was that Paul wanted the Roman church to support his next great missionary endeavor, that is, to take the gospel to Spain, the region that at that time had not yet heard the gospel. 
And so because he wanted to enlist their help, and because they were not as familiar with him as they might have been, in order to introduce himself to them, Paul writes the book of Romans. The book of Romans is an introduction to the Christian faith. It's a basic outline of what Paul would have taught in each missionary situation. That is, wherever Paul would have gone, that's what he would have preached. And so the reason Paul writes is to acquaint the Roman church with who he is and what he teaches so that when he gets to Rome, they know. And then they would quickly get on board with his program of leading a missionary enterprise into Spain. So so what is it that this missionary taught? Well, at the outset, we need to hear his heart cry for the necessity of missions. I mean, why is it so important for Paul to constantly risk his life so that the gospel would advance? Well, the answer is that according to Paul, the entire world is at this moment under the wrath of God. And let's allow him to speak for himself. I'm reading Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's come back to the wrath of God in a bit. But for now, please notice the phrase suppress the truth. You know, Paul, the great missionary to the unreached peoples of the world, believes that the human race has not been kept in the dark about God. Instead, the human race has deliberately turned out the light so that they would be incapable of seeing God. It's not that God has been unconcerned about people and that he's not given them a chance. On the other hand, it is about the fact that people have been so unconcerned about God that they gladly take every bit of evidence that is readily available to them, and they throw it into the trash heap. But how have they done that? Well, the next two verses, Romans 1, 19 to 20, Paul explains. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And what follows has often been called natural revelation. That is the revelation of God in nature. And if we had the time, we'd show that Paul is making five points. But here's the shortened version of those five points. First, from nature, we know that God exists and he is the creator of everything. Second, from that, we also know that the creator has cared for us. He gives us food to eat and air to breathe and a body that works and so on. Third, From this, we must infer that we owe to the Creator an infinite debt of gratitude. And fourth, we should also see that our gratitude to the Creator for daily sustaining our lives is not in keeping with His kindness. All of us know that ingrates are guilty. We know that we have not worshipped the Creator as we should. And fifth, because we have sinned against the Creator through our neglect, we ought to seek Him out for His mercy. Perhaps in some fashion he will forgive our sins, and if we confess them to him, begging for grace, perhaps he'll forgive. Now, this, says Paul, is self-evident from nature itself. You may not have heard of Jesus, but this voice of nature has gone out to the ends of the earth. And in the next chapter, Paul will go on to say that God has also placed in each human being a conscience. You know, sometimes our conscience justifies us and sometimes it condemns us. Again, we find we're guilty and in need of mercy. Now, by the way, that's how the Old Testament saints were forgiven of their sins. I mean, remember David. He sinned and he committed adultery and murder. 
And in Psalm 51, in his confession, verse 16, David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You see, David knows that the sacrifice in the temple was only a reminder of his sin. It never forgave him of his sin. So what's he to do? Well, Christ has not yet come and died for his sins. But in verse 17 of Psalm 51, David writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So early on in that psalm, David appeals to God's steadfast love and to his abundant mercy. Now, how could God have mercy on David if at the same time God is also just, or as Numbers 14 verse 18 says so eloquently, he will by no means clear the guilty. Well, the answer to how God can be just and merciful at the same time is, of course, eventually found in the gospel of the cross of our Savior. But David, you see, could not know how God would have mercy on him. And yet, he appealed to God for mercy, and he found it. And then, of course, 1,000 years after David, Christ died for the sins of David. See, I hope you hear me. Christ died for the sins of those people in the past who acted like David. They confessed their sins. They threw themselves on the abundant mercy of God. Ah, well, if that was true of Old Testament saints, could that not also be true today of those who have never heard? I mean, what if they who do not know the name of Jesus and are aware from natural revelation that they are sinners before a great creator? And what if they come to him and they confess their sins to him and say, who but knows? Perhaps he will find some means to forgive me of my sins. Wouldn't God then have mercy on such people? That's the question that sometimes gets asked. And you know, quite frankly, that's the question that we need to answer. But in order to answer that question, we have to not look into ourselves, but we need to go back to the man who spent years and years with those who had never heard. What does Paul have to say about that very question? Back to the Bible Canada is committed to partnership in the work of the gospel. No single individual congregation or mission is enough to fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus gathered followers to train and commission. Paul ventured throughout the Mediterranean with the news of Jesus Christ, but he didn't travel alone. He cultivated partnerships to do the great work. This month, we offer a resource called Companions for the Gospel. This laminated reference guide maps out Paul's missionary journey in Acts and highlights the men and women who work together with Paul in mission. Companions for the Gospel is our free Bible resource gift to you this month. Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy or to make a gift to the national or global efforts of Back to the Bible Canada. Great many of us put our hope in a possibility that the Apostle Paul said was really no hope at all. What if we ask, you know, someone actually responds to the light that they have and, you know, they confess their sins and they appeal to God for his mercy. Perhaps, as in the case of so many parts of the world, you know, they might even have a vision of Jesus. Yeah, perhaps. 
but we owe it to the great apostle to let him finish his argument before we jump in with our own assumptions. See, Paul has said all that Psalm 19 also says. The heavens declare the glory of God. So what if someone responds positively to the only revelation they have? But again, before we jump to a conclusion, please also remember that before Paul spoke of this revelation in nature, Back in Romans 1, verse 18, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, Paul said, our problem is not that we have no light at all. He said, whatever light we have, we actively suppress. And so for that reason, God is right in displaying his wrath against the human race. (laughs) But we might still respond, Paul You are saying that men suppress the truth, but it might be that there are exceptions to that rule. See, it it might be a true general statement, but still, aren't there found among human beings exceptions? Well, some say exactly. But in our day, a very common example that's used is an example that comes to us from Luke's account in Acts chapter 10. And you might remember that this is the account of the Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Luke says he was a military leader of the Italian cohort, so an elite unit. But Luke also tells us that this man was a devout man, that he feared God with all his household, that he gave alms generously to the poor, and that he prayed continually to God. In short, he feared God and he did what was right. Now, of course, Peter ends up at that house, and as Peter is explaining the gospel of Christ, all the people in his household believe the Holy Spirit falls on them. That's not the point I want to emphasize. The point here is that some of us believe that the description of Cornelius might not be a description of the person that Paul describes in Romans 1, the person who suppresses the truth. I mean, this man, Cornelius, is acting on all the truth that he had. And in his case, God sends him a missionary. But perhaps there are others that never have access to a missionary who would have responded as positively as Cornelius if only someone had given them the chance. I mean, surely God wouldn't condemn them then, would he? But just again, before we jump ahead of ourselves and come to unwarranted conclusions, let's go forward now to Acts chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. Peter is now explaining to others what happened that night in the home of Cornelius. He said, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Boy, I hope you heard that. The man who feared God and did what was right needed to be saved. That's to say, he was not reconciled with God. He had not been saved from his own sins. And yes, The man who conducted himself admirably was still a sinner. Cornelius may or may not have known that about himself, but Peter knew it about Cornelius. And that brings us back to Paul's statement that men suppress the truth of God. Do they all or just some? You know, Paul answers that question. If you read Romans 1 to 3 carefully, you're going to find that Romans is a progressive argument. And furthermore, it becomes clear that Romans 1 to 3 magnifies sin. That is, it makes our sin so much larger than we'd ever imagined so that we're going to be forced to run to the cross. So look then where Paul's magnification of sin leads him. I'm reading now Romans 3, 10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Now, the word none 
and the words no one make a universal case. And so in case, says Paul, we're tempted to think that only some people suppress the truth of God and not all, in case we're tempted to think that there are some who really do respond to the voice of God in nature, well, Paul now says it plainly. No one seeks God. He says, no one. If there's one thing that's universal about the human race, it's in our universal suppressing of God's truth. And thus, the rightful condemnation of the whole race is also universal. God is just when he condemns us. You know, later on in Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul emphasizes that even further. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So listen, if you wanted good news about the human race, well, the Bible slams that door shut. The Bible depicts us as we are. Now, while I speak that way, I feel I need to address two very important issues that are related to this matter. The first is simple. It doesn't seem that all people are reprehensible. You know that. Indeed, it's been often said and often demonstrated. A great many non-Christians who are like Cornelius, decent, kind, moral, and who genuinely care for others. So that depiction of universal depravity, it just doesn't seem to describe them. Now, to that, two answers are given. Whatever good we find in any human being, being among Christians or among noble non-Christians, that goodness does not arise out of them, but it is there because of grace. Just like our existence is because of grace, so also are our good deeds. And God, in his gracious purposes, often graces the lives of Christians and non-Christians with decency and goodness. That's undeniable. It is this that makes a good society possible, but make no mistake, that goodness is not self-produced. It's produced by the grace of God. Now, the second answer to the question of good in the lives of non-believers is this. Whatever good is found there does not offset their sin. Yeah, it's often the most noble among us, Christian and non-Christians, that are found to actively suppress the truth of God. See, I recently saw what I consider a reprehensible television ad. It was an ad for money that one would save from acquiring insurance from the company in question. Now, that ad started with a woman accusing her husband of his love for another woman. And he responds by saying, listen, I've just changed my insurance to brand X, and I've saved a lot of money. That ought to count for something. And and that was supposed to be funny. I've committed adultery. That's bad, but it's offset because I just got us a great deal on insurance. But as crazy as that is, that's how some of us think about God. Yeah, we've violated infinite glory, but we've given to the poor. You know, we've been decent people, but even while we've suppressed the knowledge of God, that ought to count for something. See, that's appalling theology. No, no, all men and women are condemned for their sins, and without the grace that comes through the cross of our Lord, there is no hope. The human race stands at the precipice of a chasm which will soon sweep us all away. Unless a savior is proclaimed, they will be swept away. That was the early church's thinking. The glory of the gospel is that God has made a way for both Jews and Gentiles to find forgiveness of sins and a hope for eternity through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, there are actually three questions that need addressing. I mean, the first was the question of righteous Gentiles. The second is the question of how it can be that if no one seeks God, then that must also include us who have found Christ. Yeah, that's addressed by Paul in Romans 9 to 11, that God shows us, but I'm not going to get hung up there. I want to go to question number three. Can God do that to someone who's never heard? That is, can he choose someone who's never heard? That is, God changes their hearts by grace, and they appeal to God for mercy because of his grace. See, if there is no missionary available, won't he then receive their heartfelt repentance and forgive their sins through the blood of his son? There are some things I don't know and some things that I do. I know that faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. I also think that it is possible that in such cases, Christ can come to such a person in a dream, even perhaps at the point of death, and reveal himself to them. But, but I don't know if that happens. God is just as Abraham had reminded us, and the judge of the earth will do what is right. If God chooses to supernaturally reveal his son to some in some spectacular fashion, and occasionally we do hear of just such that, then I'm content to leave that matter to God. But I find no such promise in Scripture, and to be honest, the Bible is really silent on those matters. Perhaps, as is in the case of Cornelius, God will send a missionary. You know, perhaps God will allow this broadcast back to the Bible to go to countries that have never heard. But one thing remains abundantly clear. How can they be saved unless someone goes to them and proclaims the good news of a dying Savior who paid the penalty on their behalf? The mandate of missions is always before us. Thanks, John, for a great message today. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said we would rather debate the fate of those who have never heard than sense the call or, in in essence, respond to the call. It's almost like the debate that we have justifies our behavior. Yeah, I mean, the more we debate, the more we come up with possible exceptions, and the more we, you know, our complacency just seems to grow. And it's just unacceptable. So, you know, the reason that I've tried to lay this out is because I do know that sometimes there are non-believers in our own land who will ask these kinds of questions. And I think it's important for us to have some kind of an answer that we can give. And maybe we need to give it to ourselves as well. But after having done so, we need to have this, this settled sense of unease that, you know, somehow we have allowed ourselves to become, you know, comfortable in Zion, if you understand that expression. Uh, we, you know, comfortable at home and, and uh, you know, nothing motivates us to sacrifice all to go. This is, this is unacceptable. Thanks so much, John. Join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, The Missionary God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Last month, Back to the Bible Canada shared the exciting news that our young adult ministry in doubt has welcomed Andrew Marcus as its new host and director. After much prayer and planning, in doubt is ready to relaunch this month with exciting new programming. In addition to our regular weekly radio program and podcast, you can now access on YouTube and indoubt.ca the In Doubt Show. New episodes will be posted every Monday featuring guests well-equipped to speak into the challenges of faith, life, and culture that so many young adults are facing today. Humor, fun, but most importantly, a source of biblical truth for those in doubt. 
Be sure to check out our In Doubt YouTube channel or podcast and share the word with other young adults in your lives. Stay tuned for more exciting news in the weeks ahead. And for more information or to support this important ministry, visit indoubt.ca.